This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Do you have a point of sale system you can trust or is it <clears throat> a real POS? You need Shopify for retail. From accepting payments to managing inventory, Shopify POS has everything you need to sell in person. Go to shopify.com slash system, all lowercase, to take your retail business to the next level today. That's shopify.com slash system. Hello, everybody. This is Marshall Poe. I'm the editor of the New Books Network. NBN listeners like to read books and buy them. So we thought we'd tell you that right now, our friends at Princeton University Press are having a remarkable site-wide sale. You can get 50% off books, including eBooks and audiobooks, with the code 50, F-I-F-T-Y, at checkout until May 31. You can save some real money on Princeton University Press books. I encourage you to go there and check it out. Welcome to the New Books Network. Hi, everybody, and welcome back to the New Books Network. I'm your host, Stephen Siegel, and today we'll be featuring Dominique Ryle. Dominique Ryle is coming to us from Italy, and I'm here in Southern California. We'll be talking about her book, The Fumé Crisis, Life in the Wake of the Habsburg Empire, now out with Harvard University Press, Belknap Press, in December of 2020. Welcome, Dominique, to our podcast today. Oh, thank you so much for having me. I'm, this is really exciting for me. I'm really excited to talk about this book. A uh, little bit about Dominique Ryle first. <laughs> she received her PhD with distinction from Columbia University and is currently the Associate Professor of Modern European History at the University of Miami, Florida. Her first book, Nationalists Who Feared the Nation, Adriatic Multinationalism in Habsburg, Dalmatia, Trieste, and Venice, was published by Stanford University Press in 2012 and received the 2014 Book Prize from the Center for Austrian Studies, as well as honorable mention from the 2012 Smith Award. Um, She's also an associate review editor for the American Historical Review, editor for Purdue University Press's book series, Central European Studies, and a member of the editorial board for Cambridge University Press's journal, Contemporary European History. Currently, Professor Ryle is in Italy. As I mentioned, she is a visiting scholar at the European University Institute, Biesole, where she is working on her next book tentatively entitled The Habsburg Mayor of New York, Fiorello LaGuardia. Um, She wants us to say, Dominique does, that she's native of the Santa Monica Mountains here in California, learned how to body surf at the Topanga Beach, and is especially pleased to be part of my Pacific Coastal Weekend read. I'm so excited. Few settings could be a better companion, I think, than our uh, for our discussion about this Adriatic port city of Fiume Rieka than, uh, than the Pacific. So, Dominique, let's start with a couple of questions about your wonderful book. Um, how did you come to be interested in Fiume? What, what are your personality qualities that drew you to the city's personality? Um, well, to be really honest, this book started differently than my first book. My first book started out of a kind of absolute shock that I didn't know this history before of, 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 a, of an Adriatic vision of multinationalism. And so I wanted to learn more about it. But that's not what brought me to Fiume or Rieka. 
what brought me there was anger. It, it, it's an angry book, not a loving book. It's a book that's angry at a way of talking about a world without putting the world in it. So when I finished my, when I was writing the, when I was signing the contract with Stanford, and there was a wonderful editor there who helped me so much, Norris Pope, um, we were, you know, haggling about images, which is a normal thing to do with uh, any book, especially a book like mine, which wasn't going to make any money. And, um, you know, I wanted 30,000 images and they wanted to give me two. <laughs> and I, and I, I, know I, that's I don't from understand. Maps. <laughs> I, don't, I don't understand. You know, you, you, you know, this is a world no one knows about. These are people yeah. no one's heard of. Most people can't pronounce their names, not just the, the Croatian names, but also the Italian names. You know, we need images. This is a 1840s Dalmatia. I mean, this is really not what people know about. And Norris very kindly said, but that's precisely why we can't give you the images. <laughs> no one knows anything about this. No one, you know, this book isn't yeah. going to make money. We're, we're really happy to publish it. We love the book. In the end, yeah. you know, I'm pretty stubborn and I think I got 17 images. So it, they were much more generous than they planned to be. But I remember the day after that conversation thinking, ah, oh, I worked so hard to make a world come alive that didn't exist in our imaginary. What if I undid something I don't like in our imaginary? And I just started brainstorming about stories I don't like. And that's how I got to this book. I have heard, because of living in Croatia as long as I have and in Italy, a lot about Danuncio and a lot about Fiume. Um, and it never made any sense to me. Uh, it, the whole thing didn't make sense to me. And so that's how yeah. I started. It, it, was, yeah. it, was, it was about that argument, but it was also this realization that this is a story that never made any sense. So it's a different book. The first one was, I, this is a story I've never even heard. And this one is, this is a story I don't like. Yeah. Let, and let's talk about that because I, I know from trying to get maps into books and talking to marketing people, I believe me, they, you know, they, they, they can't because it's so expensive to reproduce. Um, but you did in the Fiume crisis, get a lot of photos of, of people in the city Um I want to pick up on your comment about Denuncio. So could you talk about him and the sensationalism and the charisma and grandstanding for our listeners who, who don't know about his history in Fiume, what he did, and how you sought to read around that story? Well, I mean, I really just, it's such a bummer to have to put him in people's brains. <laughs> because <laughs> I've, I've spent so much time trying to write him out, but you're right. Most, most Americans are lucky enough to have never heard of him. Or not even just Americans. Most people not from the region are lucky enough to never have heard of him. Um, he was uh, he was a media monster. Um, he was a very gifted uh, poet and writer who was famous in his own right uh, in the eighteen nineties nineteen hundreds. He was a he was Italy's decadent. He was Italy's uh, uh, Oscar Wilde, but without. Uh, homosexuality and a lot of womanizing. Um, and he was very proud of this. And he was very famous already. And then during World War I, he was a nationalist as well. And he really liked this idea of empire. So he was a big supporter of the Libyan war against the Ottoman Empire. Um, 
And he wrote about the idea of empire before World War I even started. And when the war came, he was all in. Um, and he wasn't just all in the way he had been before the war. He wasn't all in as a poet sitting from his fireplace writing lots of like annoying articles. He enlisted in his 50s. And he actually fought. He fought on all of the fronts. I mean, the guy is, I call him the one-man PR campaign of Italy's uh, war effort. He was in the trenches. He was, on the Navy, he was in the Navy. He was in the airplanes. That was his favorite thing. This, if you've, most textbooks, even uh, English language ones, talk about the flight over Vienna where he, he dropped pamphlets basically saying, boom, you're dead, give up, or else we'll bring bombs the next time. So he was this very famous guy. And by the end of the war, people associated his enthusiasm as what, how Italy won the war because there was so much cynicism about how the state handled the war. So he started becoming this embodiment for many Italians, even those who hated him or didn't even know about him before World War I, he really became the voice of the win. And part of the reason Italy joined the war was supposedly secret treaty, but everyone knew about it, uh, of ter territorial expansion along the Alps and in the Adriatic at the cost of the Habsburg Empire. And when it was becoming uh, increasingly clear that the Paris Peace Conference, especially Wilson, was not going to give Italy everything it thought it deserved, D'Annunzio became the voice of this phrase, which he created, of the mutilated victory. So these are things, if you've ever read anything about fascism, you will have heard this phrase, mutilated victory. And you would have heard this idea of Italy being unjustly treated, because th these are things that in fascism become very important. D'Annunzio was no fascist, but he was the first step at creating a populist movement around Italian nationalism, territorial expansion, and the Adriatic. And so when he goes to the town in 1919, he becomes the town and the town becomes him in newspaper stories, not just in Italy, but around the world. And his historians have kind of replicated what yellow journalism did. So that's kind of why my anger is that somehow we just assumed he was the town and the town was him. Yeah. And I see that, especially in the historiography you mentioned and the long 20th century history, which I hope we can come back to. Those are the long stories that a lot of undergraduates get when they read Mark Mazower or they might pick up Robert Gervarth or or, Pen or Pankai Mishra or someone else. There's a sensationalist story of Denuncio. Um, I love how you lay out the book from below with local stories and naming people. Could you tell us about your chapters? How did how did you then decide as an author to choose these stories, and and what do you do in chapters that you have titles like follow the money, which I, I think are absolutely fascinating to get around that sensationalist history of proto-fascism or the mutilated body, which we get in Hungary or Tilsitsky's legionnaires. What, what do you do in order to get different stories on the page? Well, it was a, it's a very different book than my first book because my first book was mostly letters. Um, so the people that I wrote mostly about, I had their voices. 
But I, if you're doing a book from below, most people, you know, you, they're not writing you letters or you can't find them. So I took a more sociological approach on looking at how things are functioning, malfunctioning, working around, not functioning at all. Um, and names were really important. Also, age was really important in order to give a vision of... Uh, also, I never said what people were in the book, unless I knew what they, what they self-identified as. So even if they were using Italian or Croatian or Hungarian as their mother tongue, I never called them Hungarian, Italian, or Croatian, because this is a time where making those choices was something really important to people, um, either because of what they felt or because of what they needed. So, for example, the, um, the entire police force of the town uh, during this period was uh, hired by the Italian nationalist government. All of the policemen spoke Italian. They were asked in 1920, while Danunzio was in the town, to declare their nationality, and they all refused to declare it. They only would declare their, their Heimatrecht, their pertinency, which is this imperial category of, of kind of semi-citizenship, um, even if, even though they all could have said they were Italian. And that's because it was very unclear what was going to happen in the town. So using the names and giving people's ages was just trying to give the readers a feeling of the diversity of experiences around similar issues. What is, what is it when your currency is constantly in flux? It, it's something important as much to someone with a, a, a Croatian-speaking background who works in the tobacco factory as it is to someone with an Italian-speaking background who's a dry cleaner. It, 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 it's important to both. It's, it's, and, and what people are going to decide to identify themselves with might be because of the books they read, the, the fairy tales they grew up with, or it might be because of what they need from their profession or they need from their state. Um, so, so that's why I gave the names. I also just wanted to get away from this idea of historically categorizing people's desires by what we suppose their nationality was. And yeah. So, yeah. so it was important to keep the names. Could you give some examples then, therefore, of what you found in the archives? Because there is a, a real intimacy to your stories. Mm. And I, I sometimes get the impression, because I, I also um, do a lot of epistolary history, mm. that people just don't give up their private archive or personal archive, those who are teachers or those who are dry cleaners or, or those who are in a, fa <laughs> in a fascist setting right. and very worried, rightfully so, about. Um, having a national label, a nationality label being attached to them. This is such an interesting case because you've got the history of a city which is imperial and a statelet with a population that, that has to be concerned with these issues, right? right. So what, what do you actually find in plebiscite land um, <laughs> in, in, go, in, going, in going through these archives, what, what do you actually find? Can you give well, some, maybe some stories then? Yeah, I, could, I, I mean, there's so many stories, it's hard to even, but first things first, how do you find stuff? So no one knew what the world was going to be. So the archive didn't stop working the way it was working before 
1918. So when I went to the archive the first day I got to the Eka, I... Um, I speak Croatian, but with a terrible accent and many uh, grammatical failures, and, which usually makes people either laugh or, but, but usually appreciative of that I, you know, that I even try. And, um, and so I was talking that I sat down with the archivist, uh, Boris Zakoshek, uh, about and what I was wanted to work on. And, and I said, I want to work on, you know, from 1918 to 1921. Actually, I thought I would do 24 and um, he said, we don't have any of that. They took it all, mm-hmm. the Italians. Uh, the Italians yeah. did move a lot, of the, a lot of the archive to Rome, and, and Annunzio did steal a lot of the archive and took it to his little town. Um, yeah. And I said, but that, I just don't, I mean, what do you mean you don't have anything? He's like, we don't have anything. I'm like, okay, just show me the index. And I started finding, you know, all the court records and everything. And I'm like, well, can I look at this? And he's like, yeah, but that doesn't have anything to do with that. And because the story of, of the story is about the Italian state and about Denuncio, there's a kind of, there's a separation of how, how the archive is organized too. So daily life, what people expected their state to do or what the state expected their people to do, the traces are everywhere. But it, when you go in and go, I want to look at this, the first answer is, well, none of that is here because the Italian story isn't there. What's there is everybody's striving, struggling, thriving. Um, my favorite stories are always the ones of people complaining. The, I, I always <laughs> culture of grievance. It's not in the book that I always thought I would do was this this really terrible plumber who um, was a, he seemed to have been a real nationalist, but he didn't Italian nationalist, but he didn't really know how to do it right. So. They in, in, I have a section on the book on Italian name changes. So um, like yes. most of the world, changing your last name is a very important act. You're usually forced into it. Sometimes you're allowed to do it. In Fiume, they let people do it, but there were no rules. And this guy applied to change his last name, and it was Koric. Uh, and he wanted to change it to an Italian version, and so he applied to change it to Kori. And they, they, you didn't have to prove anything, and they, they, they let it go through. And then he found out everybody else with the last name Korich turned it into Corini. And so he wanted to have Corini. So then he wrote, and he said, well, can I change my name again? I want to be Corini like everybody else. And they're like, no, you can't keep on changing your last name. So, I mean, there's just these. these this was a then, plumber. This was a plumber. So, so, but also it's like this idea of you're changing your name because you don't want to have that Slavic sounding last name anymore because sure. it's important to sound Italian. And then you forget about all the other things that last names do, right? They, they, they keep you connected. And clearly, he was the loser of the family because no one told him that, guys, we're going to do Corini. <laughs> so he's mm-hmm. the only one who's right. Corini. I mean, these are, the, these are the things that I love. I love the divorce petitions. I love the, I love the uh, you know, witnesses that are supposed to be afraid who are going, what are you even asking me about? We all know this, talking about counterfeiting or... Uh, yeah. I, you know, I, I, I love people who are getting annoyed that they haven't gotten their quote unquote citizenship papers or their pertinency papers and going, I've been waiting for a month, a year and a half while that guy got it in two weeks. I mean, why are they not afraid? Right, <laughs> exactly. So, so, I mean, you've got all these, you know, people who become Venturis and Orsini's and, and Cornani's, right? And then 
you you have Fiume, which is is almost a different world. I wouldn't say an exceptional world. We, we have to maybe be careful with that. And that's a question I, I have to ask you. But I love your coverage, Dominique, of, of divorce and marriage and the everyday on that level. Could you talk a little bit about what um, Fiume becomes? It, it's, you know, for Denuncio, you have the analogy of Woodstock. But I, I guess my analogy for divorce would be Las Vegas. It, it, it's almost like a divorce capital. And well, so actually, how- it's more like the Dominican Republic, you know, going outside <laughs> the state to, to, to get divorced. Yeah, because, explain um, that. <laughs> so, uh, you know, what's, what I've loved about this book is much about the book itself is I've learned so much more about the Habsburg Empire because my first book was about the, the beginning of the, the 19th century, and this has been about the beginning of the 20th century. And um, looking at what happened with the division of the Austrian and Hungarian half and really going into it, that's what Fiume is, because Fiume is not um, part of the Austrian half. It's part of the Hungarian half. So Trieste and Dalmatia, the two regions I'd worked on before, were part of the Austrian half. So I got to learn a lot about the Hungarian half by working on Fiume. And mm-hmm. I and most people who work on Fiume don't really work realize the big difference that the Hungarian state is compared to the Austrian state. And one of them is around divorce. So in yeah. Austria, divorce is only legal to non-Christians. And to in Hungary, what they did is they decided to make, you know, Jewish or Muslim law the law for all. So meaning that instead of letting religion determine what lay law is, uh, they decided to make a lay law where you didn't need to make exceptions for religious differences. So exactly the opposite of the Austrian case. So when when the Habsburg Empire disappears, and it dissolves is such a weird world word too, I mean, just disappears. It never disappears. <laughs> <laughs> it's never gone, but it's never, it, all of a sudden there's no there there. Um, you know, they still have divorce and mm-hmm. they're trying to be part of Italy, which really doesn't have divorce. Um, right. I mean, they have a divorce Italian style. There's a very funny movie uh, from, I think it's from the sixties uh, about like having to kill your spouse. It's the only way to, to and this is actually true. There's a wonderful book Seymour yeah. yeah. on divorce Italian style. Uh, and, so in Fiume, it, you can get divorced. And what Fiume does, not during the necessarily the period I'm working on, in the period right after, from 1921 to 1924, they make money on selling the right to be, call yourself Fiumeans so you can get divorced. They make temporary pertinency citizenship to the town so Italians can get divorced. Um, in my period, while I'm looking at it, um, you see all these Italians moving to Fiume to try and get divorced. And what's really fascinating is that when the Fiume state is annexed by Italy in 1924, they have to change a, a divorce law in Italy to make the exception for the Fiumean divorce. There are no mm-hmm. new ones and there are no more divorces right. allowed, but they had to validate an entire divorce regime within their new country because of so it is it is one of the weirder parts of the story, but what what I what I think it's important about, besides just being interesting, it it's it's inherently interesting. But it really shows that wanting to be Italian or wanting to annex the city to Italy in no way means wanting to stop having your privileges or 
wanting to, you know, give up what has become now a norm. And also even more fascinating is Italians who think maybe this Habsburg norm is more interesting than the Italian norm. So this vision of thinking about annexation, dissolution of the state, and reconstitution of states as also a kind of comparative shopping around mm. statehood yeah. and law instead of just about identity. This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Do you have a point of sale system you can trust or is it <clears throat> a real POS? You need Shopify for retail. From accepting payments to managing inventory, Shopify POS has everything you need to sell in person. Go to shopify.com slash system, all lowercase, to take your retail business to the next level today. That's shopify.com slash system. Yeah. And, and there's, I think you used the word mashup even at, at one point in talking about this layered sovereignty and layered pertinency, perhaps. I, I, I mean, I, I love the idea of people actually in the constant state of belonging and constant state of becoming where it's not simply the moment where you declare yourself in a new category of nationality. And you, you have a, a great number of examples. I, I, you know, the chapter on marriage, definitely, I would recommend to all of the <laughs> listeners. Um, could we talk about the currency issue? Oh, so I love that. How, how, do you, how do you follow the money, Dominique? What, what is the, what is the, mono, the monocurrency regime and how do you follow the, cur- the currency issues? Tell this is us. the first chapter I wrote. And I wrote it while I was at the American Academy in Rome, which is if you can ever go there, go there. It's one of the most amazing fellowships where no one bugs you and your job is just to be brilliant and work. And so I did something where I decided to do the one thing I felt most insecure about, which was, you know, economic history. I am not an economic historian. So how I think about money is just different and how the archives forced me to talk about money. It is everywhere. It's not just in the archives, Mm -hmm. in the newspapers every single day. I didn't use newspapers and we can talk about that later, but um, I had to talk about money. And the reason was, was because there is, and there's a picture in the book, um, I don't know if you remember it, of uh, a window of a bank. And it in the background, yeah. it, the, the sign says, Wechselstube, exchange, exchange Center. And then on top of it, in Italian, it says, we want, we want annexation. And that is not an accident. That, that the mm. idea of annexation is deeply, deeply intertwined with the idea of dealing with exchange rates. And with the currency crisis that happens everywhere in, ex, in ex-imperial Europe, everywhere, um, I mean, there's wonderful Russian histories, as you know, about what happens. Uh, sure. uh, and the German stories as well. Yeah, right? I mean, it's everywhere. Yeah, and, it's, it, and one thing that's fun about doing um, the, the ex-Habsburg empire is that the currency had been so stabilized by the beginning of the 20th century and had been so centralized, you know, it was only supposed to be printed in Vienna, they had created a relatively new relationship with money that was about a commodity that you shouldn't even think about anymore or feel anymore. And by 1918, the exact opposite happens, and they put on these silly little stamps, the easiest things in the world to counterfeit, 
and then fed exactly the same piece of paper to different economies that aren't even formed yet, creating thereby a chaos of values that no one, and especially with considering the financial roots and trade roots and just food roots, could ever nationalize the way that these states were trying to do it. And so it's a story of usage as much as it is of planning. Usually economic history is about planning. (laughs) Yeah. Uh, This is a a chapter about money as usage and seeing how much a chaos of usage, instead of creating um, revolution, creates an almost willingness to go with whatever will solve this problem. And in this case, what I see is a willingness to annex yourself to an Italian nationalist and Slavophobe state Um, in order to get a stable currency. Sure. Could you, I mean, I have to ask, could you share the story of the Fishbein trial? Because (laughs) I I love that part of the book. You know, Istvan Dayak, when he he came to hear my talk at Columbia, shared Mm -hmm. with me stories about Hungarian counterfeiting, which I then put into my Mapman book. (laughs) You know, because there were map institutes and and cartographers in in Budapest who were involved in these counterfeiting scandals in the 20s with, with Count um, Peleki. Mm-hmm. So I, I'm really interested in the story. What, what happens with the Fishbein trial in, I think it was 1920, right? Yeah, 1919. Or, it st- starts in December. They catch him every all, and then they do the trial in 1920. So yeah. Paroli Fishbein, poor guy. I mean, poor guy. He's a total, um, you know, he's, he's the bad guy, right? Of all of right. World War I Europe. He's a, he's a war profiteer. He's a Jew. Plutocrat. And he's not even very rich or, or very cultured. Um, and he arrives in Fiume right before the Habsburg Empire dissolves. So he's also not a Fumian, which I, you know, is also fascinating. And he decides yeah. to make money on currency crisis, um, as so many do. And he gets involved with a band of other people, but not other people like him, a, a, a wide array of different um kind of types you would find in Fiume. So in, they they arrest, I, I can't remember right now, but I, they arrest, like, I think, seven or six of them. One of them gets away, and then there's traces of others that were involved. And what we're talking here is about people working, bank tellers working in the bank who helped give, you know, give a blind eye to these uh, these forged currencies in order for real money to be made, or... Uh, you know, mechanics who help mechanics, get, yes. the, get, the, <laughs> get the stamps or make the stamps by, you know, smelting and the, these kinds of things, or or people who work in the marketplace and can help mm. move the money, or, you know, the the Austrian nanny who, <laughs> who will have yeah. the connections yes. to put you in contact <laughs> with the person in Vienna, because uh, Vienna is really the heart of all of the counterfeiters for all the different successor states. That's where you want to figure out how to make the fake stamps and where you want to get unstamped money. Um, mm-hmm. You see in the counterfeiting of the successor state money, you see how these imperial networks keep on going. Anyways, they catch them all and they have this trial. And the trial is as much about the people who are making the counterfeited money as it is about the people who are are kind of like contact tracing of how the money enters the, the general uh you know, workings of the town. And so they don't just 
take witness testimony from people who are the criminals. They take all this testimony from everybody who was caught holding a counterfeited piece of money. And so they, they, in order to figure out if someone's guilty or not, they ask, how did you, how did you decide this money was real? Well, if you think mm-hmm. about it, even that question means that everybody knows almost all the money isn't. In fact, 60% of the money was counterfeited in Fiume at that point. Wow. So That's, that's shocking. That's absolutely so, shocking. <laughs> so, so what people answered is the exchange rate they paid to get the money because everybody's exchanging money because you need a certain kind of money at the marketplace and a certain kind of money when you have to pay your taxes or your rent and a certain kind of money when you want to go out of town. So people are have this amazing calculus of I was paying 66%. And that and also that the judge and everyone in the court knows they know too what is a proper or improper exchange. And they're giving percentages. They're not doing four to one. They're, like these are people, many of them illiterate, who know how to do these kind of calculations. Like one woman who's a seamstress is explaining how obviously innocent she is because of the exchange rate she paid, but she's talking in percentages. The whole thing is just absolutely fascinating. But the best part of that story is the people who say they paid a really low rate, and so they knew there must be something wrong with the money, and they went to the government exchange booth to have it verified, and the government exchange booth verified false money is real. So if you ever want a feeling about do I trust my state? Those are not the moments. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, it's, it's, it sounds like anarchism to me yeah. um, from the ground. It's not anarchism. Well, it's, it's, it's something everyone wants to stop, right? It's a chaos. Sure. We're trying to figure out how to survive, but no one in there seems like they're enjoying this. Yeah. And that question that you raised earlier of pertinency, mm-hmm. I think, is, is so relevant here because from the local to the city-state, to the national, to the imperial, then how do you bring out that larger question of pertinency in, mm-hmm. in, in a multi-ethnic empire that has dissolved? So what, what, are, what is the agency question, I guess, here for these locals? Because we're dealing with about 50,000, yeah. right, in Fiume. So 50,000 out of maybe 36 or 37 million in the Italian kingdom. Um, what are, the, what are the bigger issues then that you're trying to cover with the stories? Well, I, I mean, I learned, again, so much about the Habsburg Empire looking at this question of pertinency, which for anyone who works on the Habsburgs, it's called Heimatrecht. Um, but in the uh, Paris Peace uh, Treaties, they do use the word pertinency um, for these territories, also because it's just more English-friendly. So I use, I use the word that's more English-friendly just hopefully to get readers who are not obsessed with the Habsburg Empire. But uh, so that and I've been learning more and more about this in the Austrian part of the Habsburg Empire, they had made a a fairly recent uh, um, uh, easing progressive change to what the rules were in which anyone who lived there within 10 years and didn't have bad behavior and had financial security could claim, could apply for pertinency. And in Hungary, the rule was anyone within two years who was paying taxes and didn't get into trouble uh, and applied for it would get it. And within four years, they would automatically get it whether they knew they had it or not. In Croatia, Slavonia, they had completely different rules, even though they were part of the Hungarian kingdom, in, in which it was incredibly difficult to get 
pertinency. And Fiume, being a semi-independent city-state, also had different rules. So you have a situation where the rules of pertinency were very different. And for anyone who doesn't know what this means, pertinency means absolutely nothing to you unless you're very rich or very poor. Pertinency means uh, poor relief. Mm, that's a great point. Yeah. Or it means, you know, uh, having a voice in local municipal decisions. Other than that, it really, or, or being able to not get kicked out of a place. That's what pertinency means. Citizenship before 1918 covered everything you needed, really, unless you were in the worst situation or the best situation. And in a town like Fiume, where 60% of the town had moved there within the last 30 years from all different parts of the empire and even outside of the empire, whatever the world pertinency was didn't really matter that much to people because they were all legal and they could use the schools and the hospitals. They could get any job. This, this, this category didn't mean anything. When citizenship disappeared, Habsburg citizenship, Hungarian citizenship, then all of a sudden they did something strange. They decided to keep make pertinency the new citizenship. And all of a sudden, 70% of the town didn't have pertinency, that before didn't have pertinency, all of a sudden didn't have citizenship either. Right. So yeah. you have a situation where something that was very hard to get before 1918 but didn't really matter much became something absolutely vital to get because it's the only way you're going to get your ration card. This is the only way you're allowed yeah. to work. And the rules were about, about who the state wanted to let in or not. And yeah. before they would have been around were you a Hungarian citizen? But at now, after 1918, it didn't matter if you were a Hungarian citizen. It mattered if you were a local and if you mm -hmm. were not going to cause trouble to this nationalizing government. They didn't require people to be Italian. They just required them to not be anti-Italian. Yeah. And, so, and how... And yeah. yeah, I mean, sorry. So how do you read the language issue, therefore? Because you have all of these REVs, right? Right. So, how, I mean, how do how do they acquire power if, given the what what Fiume officialdom looks like? Well, a lot of the <laughs> so the, you know the town. Sorry, that's a, that's a, big it's a hard question because there's so much information. <laughs> Got to read the book. Um, <laughs> no, <laughs> no. I mean, it's just the town kept its prior. A governmental structure of being run like a city state. And so the municipal government still ran day to day life. And right. then the National Council, like all the other national councils throughout Eastern Europe, took the place of what the empire had been. So Hungary got replaced by the National Council, and the Municipal Council of Fiume continued to do its job. So you had a nationalist, national council, Italian nationalists, who were kind of the overseers of a municipal structure that was what it had been before, which was, you know, an Italian mate, but mm -hmm. definitely very mixed. And everyone in that thing was mixed. Very, very few people, you know, one would, any anyone in Rome would not consider most of these people Italian. Um and so what they just did is they used their old categories of what is Fumian and mm -hmm. what is and it is, is a good Fumian and bad Fumian, and they added nationalism to it, but they didn't require people to speak perfectly. They even, even the teachers, they, 
they instead of firing all the teachers who didn't speak Italian perfectly, they created summer courses and all these extra courses to teach them yeah. Italian. So yeah. I mean, it, 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 just thinking about that, yes, they they closed the Hungarian schools. They uh, they even outlawed Croatian in the in the outskirts of the town where before Croatian had been taught. And uh, they had Croatian teachers. They had Hungarian teachers. They fired some of them, but they fired them for for political reasons, not for ethnic reasons. And so mm. it's a it's a it's a, it's more like they wanted people to not cause trouble with their goal. The, I'm talking about the government goal of annexation. It wasn't the same thing as what would happen later with fascism. It's a different kind of Italianization. Um, yeah. I think people have to read your, your chapter, this, A Sense of Self, is the chapter mm-hmm. I'm thinking about with the, how this affects people who are not of Italian heritage or non-native Italian mm-hmm. speakers. Um, it, it's an interesting story because I would imagine, correct me, the crisis doesn't really end in 1921. No, it's worse. <laughs> so it's aggravated um, up to and through Mussolini. Um, <laughs> And, and that's really where I want to go, um, Dominique, with, with the next question. So talk a little bit about the local dimension from Rijeka, Rijeka, Rijeka historians that you mentioned, um, the Italian Autonomous School, and, and then what this might mean if we take out that story of Fumé exceptionalism to larger narratives that people write for 20th century history. This is a huge question, right. um, but I think your book, has so much potential um, really to frame this. And, you know, I think of other free cities like Danzig, for example, mm-hmm. um, the stories need to be told in a different kind of way. So I wonder how you would tell them. Well, I, I mean, the, 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 the comparison with Danzig Gdansk, it, it's almost impossible not to make, right? They're the two, these two big ports and Danzig is even bigger than Fiume. So, I mean, in fact, should be a bigger story, but it's actually not because both sides of Danzig before World War One lost, right? So it's a mm-hmm. it's a it's a port city that's getting determined by the Paris Peace Treaties, where there's no winners. While Fiume is a port city that's under uh, whose whose future is contested between two winners, Serbia and Italy. So even though you would think that they are very similar stories, they're really very different stories because the geopolitics involved in placing Fiume is a bigger (laughs) diplomatic mess because there are a lot of people going in there going, but I won. (laughs) Yeah, exactly. Uh, I'm not a a loser, baby. (laughs) And we that situation up the wazoo. Both sides for the Fiume story are winners. And both sides for the the Danzig story are losers except for the new country, Poland. So, Mm -hmm. you know, there's... You, you have a, a majority German town that's in the middle of a new state created out of the carcass of the losers. And mm-hmm. precise, it, it, it's, a, it's a, actually, so what I really want to do is, separate, is, is distinguish these two histories enormously. Uh, mm-hmm. I think that comparing them makes a lot of sense when you, 
when you think about how they then function as autonomous cities or, or how they function as independent city-states under supposed League of Nations tutelage, um, I think they're also very comparable in why they are made independent is because on the grand scheme of things, port towns are more important to the world than villages in the middle of nowhere. And so keeping them up for grabs sounds more interesting to global trade and, you know, when steamships yeah. mattered. So, so there's no reason, the only reason these places are independent is because A, no one knows how global trade is going to get reignited. And so keeping those options open is really important. But on a local level, what I see as the real difference is that Fiume uh, leaders and even the on-the-grounders believe in their protagonism in a way I find fascinating <laughs> because they, they, they just see a continuity of making plays uh, about how to push their own interests. I, I don't know very much about Danzig Gedanks, but I don't really think they have as much play. They can't yeah. stall the, the peace treaty the way Fiume did. That yeah. just isn't possible. They don't have and, a delegation. I, and I, 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 agree, I agree with you there because it, it's it's a great question for Wilsonian self-determination and mm-hmm. all of this mapping down from right. above, which, which really denies what people want on the ground. So, right. I, I mean, I, I do think that in the historiography or in the history, we're going to have an endless quarrel between the comparativists and the transnationalists. And right. um, because the comparativists like to compare, but they're comparing apples and oranges. Right. And exactly. it, it doesn't necessarily apply really well if you're doing a deep dive into Rieka right. um, in the archives. And, and I guess um, the whole school of thought that exists both for Italian history and, and for Fiume history. The other question I have, and I can't let you go without this, is <laughs> the story forward through proto-fascism and Mussolini mm-hmm. and mm-hmm. really up to, up to the period, through the period of fascism to World War II, so how does that story change the history of the, the Holocaust, but how does it change the narrative from 1914 up to, say, 19, 1945? That's such a difficult... I have like 17 answers to that question. So I'm just, just going <laughs> to answer with the one I've been thinking about recently, which is why is Danunzio so popular in Italy, which I just... I really don't understand why he is. And I I keep on thinking about why also, I mean, if you think about German history or if you think about American history with Rizvi, the Confederacy, even people who are considered proto of something and they weren't it are not loved. (laughs) You know, you're not, you're not Mm -hmm. making new statues about them. I mean, Danunzio was no fascist. And I think that's precisely why people in Italy today really are getting more excited about his memory and the memory of Fiume. And I've been thinking about this, and I think it's because precisely because he was an Italian nationalist who believed right. in a greater Adriatic and a mare nostrum, a, a Roman legacy or a Venetian legacy of Italian influence and Italian civilization, who wasn't the guy with the thugs who, you know, who, who, who beat up, workers and terrorize communities into submission the way the history mm-hmm. of Italian fascism is, is it's, 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 it, it's fun to think 
that this was fascism, that, that it was the pirates and the nudists and, and the, the disgruntled veterans and the 17-year-old boys running away from home because they want to be part of something big, and that it's not an anti-socialist, anti-worker, uh, beating people up history. And so I think that the continued vision of Fiume being part of the long march to fascism is almost lets fascism off the hook for how, how violent it really was. Mm, that's interesting. And, yeah. um, and it does something which on the creation side is useful too, is that it, it, it hides the complicity of people who were also creation in keeping Fiume going during this entire period. So, I mean, my book, I, 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 uh, some people seem to be excited about it in creation, and I hope it's for the right reasons, but it could also be for the wrong reasons too, because I do put creations back in the history, but I don't, and there are, there are very strong uh, anti-Italian and anti-Denuncian activists in the town. I, I'm not saying everybody was fine with everything, but I also show the structures of complicity of going along with the state. And so mm-hmm. I can imagine it's not going to be that loved a book for some people because yeah. it kind of it kind of ruins both stories. There's that yeah. this is just not what happens in the 30s and 40s. And believe me, if you look at Rieka or Fiume's history in the 30s and 40s, that's about violence. <laughs> that's that's <laughs> that's a different story. That's centralization. That's forced Italianization. Uh, that's a different history. So yeah. why is it important to remember this? It's really important to remember this because if you place 1918 to 1921 as the seed of everything to come, you're giving a really rosy picture of everything to come. Yeah. And and I think this book needs to be translated um, in, into Croatian, Serbian, Bosnian, for sure. I mean, you, you have a strategic choice, which you make to call it the kingdom of Serbs, Croats, and Slovenes from the beginning. Right. And I, I, you know, I mean, I think that's extraordinarily important. Um, the last question I have is about Wilson, because I, I ask Larry Wolf this <laughs> all the time. We did plumbers, so let's talk about Woodrow. Uh, <laughs> where does oh, this leave Wilson? <laughs> Tell us. So what, what does this do finally with Wilsonian self-determination? And um, In one minute, go. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, Wilson, Larry Wolf just wrote this great book, and anyone who hasn't read it should read it because it really just shows how difficult it is to place Wilson in a, a category of like, pragmatic history or what does he mean? Uh, but what, what he really means for Rieka is that, at least for my book, is that he kind of is the foil that reminds us all that what the state is saying and what Danuncius is saying isn't true, right? So in, even though I'm, I'm no lover of Wilson, and I think he creates a mess, what he's, what he's really saying is there is no reason to give Fiume to Italy. <laughs> yes. why, we, what? why is this? Why is, you know, what's going on here? Um, so in, in a strange way, even though I am the last person to speak well of Wilson, um, in many ways, his, his role in the Fiume story is this is not an Italian town. And it serves economically, mm-hmm. 
a, a region, the former Habsburg Empire, and he specifically mentions in this uh, newspaper article, he writes the Italians' uh, complete diplomatic failure, trying to beg them to stop wanting fiume. He writes this to the general public of Italy because he can't convince the diplomats. And he says, what we have to think about the trade for Czechoslovakia <laughs> and Romania and Hungary and Austria. So what he's thinking fiume is, is what his his advisors told them it had been and what, exactly. what had made it a big town or a boom town. Yeah. Um, so in some ways, Habsburg Empire alive at the same time as he was trying to squash it. Yep. And that's why there are statues to him in Prague <laughs> and, <laughs> and, and not where you are. <laughs> well, that's why the Yugoslavs loved him in April, 1919. <laughs> yes. Yes, yes, yes. So here, here we are, Dominique. We're running out of time, and okay. I want to make sure that you're, um, you can talk about um, maybe a couple books that you would recommend on this topic, and then your current research on the Habsburg mayor of New York. This sounds like a fascinating history of the uh, LaGuardia, Fiorello LaGuardia. So uh, what are you doing now, and, and what, what might you recommend for our listeners here at New Books, New Books Network? Well, on my topic per se... I think you should read my book. But if you, <laughs> around my topic, there's some books I really like. Um, I really like Mark Thompson's book, The White War, which is about World War I and the Italian campaign. I really like, um, there's, a, there's a lot of great articles coming out um, looking at women, looking at workers, looking at, uh, at the Istrian at the region by historians like uh Plabian, uh, Rockstega, Francesca Rolandi, and Ivan Jalicic. There is one book, I can send it you the link later. That I think it's called Borderlands of, I, I forgot the title. But anyways, around the topic, there's stuff I like. Uh, what I'm working on next is on Fiorella LaGuardia, who, if you've lived in New York or you've gone through the airport, you've heard of him. He was one of New York's favorite mayors very charismatic guy, but he's, he's the opposite of Denuncio. I kind of like him. I mean, he was a jerk to many people, and, but he was, he's a lovable jerk. Um, and he was a depression era mayor of New York. And he, in our current memory, he's the typical Italian American from nothing immigrant family. But in fact, he was, his family, his mother's side was Jewish from Trieste. He had lived uh, his teenage and early twenties in the Habsburg empire in Trieste, in Fiume, in Zagreb, in Budapest. This is how he became a man. And so I'm writing a book placing him learning how to be a man in the Habsburg Empire and thinking about how much this did or didn't affect his astronomical rise in New York City. Um, for mm -hmm. someone with no money and no network, how he rose so high. Um, and yeah. he, he was the immigrant mayor. I mean, he was the mayor yeah. the immigrants voted in, but he's also the mayor that the rich New Yorkers voted in. So how does, right. how does someone do that as a Republican? Yeah, um, and all, all the languages he knew, oh, I was yeah. trying to keep track of them, in Croatian, Yiddish, Hungarian. It was just incredible. Yeah, his Hungarian, I think, was very uh, iffy, but uh, German, uh, Italian, and, you know, when he met Tito, he, they played chess and spoke in Croatian. Um, when, he was, wow. uh, when he was campaigning in New York City, he was spoken Yiddish. And he was not Jewish. He was Protestant. 
So I, mm-hmm. just to give, I mean, he was, um, he wasn't just good at languages. He knew the tool of languages. And I think that that, that is a Habsburg story that, that, yeah. that transitioned well to New York City. Books that I'm really excited about, um, and some of them I think you're going to be talking to people with, are Krista Goff's book coming out soon, uh, Nested Nationalism. I read it. I read the final copy a couple months ago, and it's just extraordinary. Uh, also, not just in the Torah story of uh, Soviet Azerbaijan, but also her methodology of using oral history is just fascinating. Mm-hmm. Um, I've, I've tweeted about this and put it up, but... Victoria de Gazzi's book, The Perfect Fascist, is the, the perfect combination of something you can't put down because it's so fun to read and something that you'll never think of fascism the same way. Uh, mm-hmm. it, is, it is stunning. Yeah. Um, a book that I read just for fun that has you know, no direct connection to what I do is Sarah Abreviaya, I don't know how to pronounce her name, Stein. Uh, family papers, uh, Sephardic yeah. journey through the 20th century, looking at these uh, this family from uh, Salonika Thessaloniki, and and looking at what happens uh, throughout. It's a hundred year story, and it's just yeah. beautiful. She's at UCLA. It's a great. She's book. at UCLA, yeah. And then Lale Chan's Jean's spiritual subjects, Central mm-hmm. Asian pilgrims in the Ottoman Hajj at the end of empire, is really just an amazing uh, getting back to why do we care about the Hajj? It's as much about structure as it is about process. And yeah. um, Clear, clearly, there's so much more to read and so much to be done. Um, I want to thank you, Dominique, for mm-hmm. writing this wonderful book and spending 10 years <laughs> researching <laughs> it because I, I will recommend it. I, I loved uh-huh. reading it. And thank you so much for being with me here and, and, um, I, I just um, can't speak enough about it. it. It's such a wonderful book. The book here is called uh, by Dominique Rao, who is a professor at the University of Miami, Florida. She has written The Fume Crisis, Life in the Wake of the Habsburg Empire, out now with Harvard University Press and Belknap Press in December of 2020. I'm your host, Stephen Siegel, here at the New Books Network. Thank you, Dominique, for being with us today. Oh, it's so fun. I wish I were in California. It's raining here. <laughs> we're going to go surfing someday. Thanks. <laughs> Bye. <laughs>